This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Sherry Turkle. She is Abby rockefeller Maze, Professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology at MIT. I spoke with her on February 22, 2011, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of public radio station WBUR in Boston. This interview is included in our show, Alive Enough, Reflecting on Our Technology. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Oh, hello. Hello. Hi, this is Krista Tippett. Hi, this is Sherry Turkle. Hi, thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. This is, I'm really looking. I've, I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, good. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a, had a <coughs> terrible cold. Well, me too. It's oh. going to be the walk-in wounded. We'll, we'll, oh. we'll just make it happen. Yeah, it's one of these things our children give us, right? These unexpected gifts. <laughs> so, I'm hoping it's not going to sound too bad. But I, I, uh, you know, I've been. Well, I don't want to. I don't want us to actually start speaking substantively because then we'll be in it. But yeah, I, just no, wanna... I, I, I would actually rather not because then I find that I don't repeat myself. Yeah, exactly. Because I've already said things and it yeah. gets very bizarre. No, okay. So, Chris, are we? How are we for sound check? Okay, you want me to talk some more? Um, uh, 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 well, just you know, I, so let's not talk about this yet. I'll ask you about this directly in a little while. But I was just, I just felt like uh, so many of the reviews of your book missed a lot of the big points. That they, that they and <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, I know as an author, it's great because you got lots of print. But uh, no, I'm. It's very frustrating. <sighs> I, now, I don't think it's good for the book. It makes the book sound like a lot of other books. Well, it means I, mean, that I don't people think it's buy it. But yeah, I. So, I, don't, I don't. I don't think it's good for the book. Yeah, it's a strange, strange thing. And I, I went back and looked at. I looked at the whole trilogy. You know, in addition to other things you'd said, written and. Um, and uh, I was I was wanting to interview you, and 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 then I read I think I read that New York Times review, and I yeah you're right it sounded to me like other books, and I, and then I heard you somewhere being interviewed, and I heard what you uh-huh. were really saying, and I came in and I said we have to interview this woman, and we have to interview about what what she wants to talk about. Okay, so now they say we should go, so we'll get into this. We'll get into this. All right. So, um, but you know, I mean, the truth is, is that um, I mean, just you know, I, I anybody who works. 30 years on a topic or anybody, this book took me 15, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to pretend that I'm a low-key uh, Zen kind of personality <laughs> um, because that would be really doing a disservice to, I mean, people, anyone who knows me would laugh. Yeah. But, you know, at a certain point, um, it truly is out of your control. Yes. And um, that's right. it. Right, right. That's it. So. Right. Um but so, I am I am mad at the guy who said the, the only the only thing I'll admit to then we can start okay. just to show you I'm a human being yeah because I wouldn't say it on the air <laughs> is that there was the the New York Times Sunday Times said basically she wrote two books they were lying around the house they're two different books she put them together yeah what a lazy thing to do yeah. You know, oh. and here, you know, for ten years, I'm interweaving these two stories in my mind. <laughs> well, well, and again, as I say, I read that review, and when I finally really read your book, I, it, that review did not. If, even if he thought there were two books, he didn't re- review either one of them. <laughs> That's what I felt. Well, you're sweet. <laughs> um, okay, so, so you know, I'm just just to start out. I'm 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 utterly intrigued just by the way you describe your 
passion, your your interest and concern that you that you study the subjective side of our encounters with technology. You said I'm concerned with the human meaning of the objects of our lives. And and just as we start, I wanted to ask you a, a kind of question I ask everyone, which is, you know, was there a was there a spiritual background to your childhood? And and what I what I wonder as I as I read those kinds of statements that you make about what what interests you? You know, was there a spiritual background to your childhood that seeded this kind of concern about human meaning? Well, I think in my case, the um, the question didn't come from a spiritual quest. It came from a, a, a deeply personal psychological quest. My father, uh, my biological father, disappeared from my life when I was around two. I saw him again briefly, back and forth a little bit until I was around eight. Mm. But uh, for a reason that I was never told, uh, my mother, my grandparents, my mother's sister, my aunt, who we went back to live with after her divorce, uh, didn't want me to know anything about him. Mm. And so, of course, I only wanted to know things about him (laughs) and would search through... You know, every family, we, we lived in very close quarters, an apartment in Brooklyn with, you know, where, where, where five adults were squeezed into a one-bedroom apartment. But there were these places. There was a closet that had old books and trinkets, and there was a, a junk drawer, and there were, mm-hmm. there were just these places where their memories were kept. I called them the memory closets. Mm-hmm. And um, I, would, I would scour them for traces of him. I was looking for a photograph where he might be in the background. I was looking for some object that he could have given my mother. I was looking for something. And finally, I found one. I found a, a photograph of him in which someone in anger had, had rubbed out his face. Mm. But I found all kinds of information from that photograph. You know, that he wore tweed pants, where he was standing, what his shoes you know, his lace-up shoes looked like. And I just think that some place in that quest of a child for something about the uh, that quest for objects where the person was missing, hmm. The, hmm. the notion of looking for objects to fill in human meaning um, became very close to my heart in a very personal way. And... Um, Everyone in my family, because we were in such close quarters, had very few objects. So it meant that the objects that they had were very precious to them. And I became fascinated, you know, how in, a, in this tiny, small apartment, everybody had something that, that totally captured them. And you, you and write about your, your uh, fascination with Nancy Drew, and it sounds like you yes. became a kind of young Nancy Drew out to uncover yes. mysteries and decode secrets. And this is making more sense to me also with this story. Yes. I, I you know what Nancy, Nancy, always, um, Nancy always solved her mysteries by finding the object that would help her decode meaning, mm-hmm. whether it was a twisted candle, uh, a jewel box, <laughs> you know, it was right. always it was always something mundane and exotic, um, and I, I just became uh, very taken with that idea. Now, obviously, as I became a sociologist, there's a, you know, there's a fancy word for studying this. It's called bricolage. It's the science of studying meanings and the interplay of objects. And I realized that that's kind of what I'd been doing all the time, a little bit like Moliere's 
you know, Monsieur Jourdain, who'd been speaking prose all his life without knowing it. I'd been a bricoleur all my life <laughs> without knowing it. But but I think that I um, my my passion for what objects give meaning to people's lives and how they invest and project in objects in a, in a way that has nothing to do with materialism mm-hmm. or collecting. Because some people say, oh, you're interested in collecting. And I say, no, no, because... You know, my grandparents weren't collectors. Mm-hmm. There wasn't money for collecting. But my grandmother had her china, you know, her, her, her best Jewish holiday china that her mother had used. And it didn't have to do with collecting. It had to do with memory. So, so is this, this kind of a lifelong question of yours about where memories are kept and how we make sense of the objects and how how the how objects I think you've said this lead us to ourselves and lead us lead our way through the world are you is part of what you're doing trying to figure out you know are our are technological devices new objects i mean what do they take away how do they become how do they lend themselves to this kind of bricolage oh absolutely mm-hmm. they are objects uh it remains to be seen the degree to which we will let them take away, because they also give. Um, right. For many years, I studied the way they give. Um, and then a couple of things happened, I'll show, I'm sure we'll get to it, where I became aware of some ways in which they take away in, in ways that began to trouble me, and I focused my attention on those. But they, you know, they also give immensely. Um, but yes, I mean, technological objects uh, have become almost phantom limbs. They are so much part of us. Right, right. They are so much part of us. Right. I mean, seriously, Pete, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a phenomenon where people feel their phones ringing and they're not. Uh, it's called the phantom ring. And and I came up with the notion of the phantom limb because um, teenagers report that even when they put their um, cell phones in their lockers. You know, as schools mm-hmm. require them to do, they can fe- they know when their uh, phones are ringing. Oh my gosh! So I came up with the notion of the phantom <laughs> limb. Uh, we're very close to our phones. So, so you know, it's absolutely fascinating to read that when you started at MIT, um, you, you say you met the idea that part of your job would be to think of ways to keep technology busy, yes. and that alone tells us how little we understood in the beginning and how radically, not just our lives, but our imaginations about this thing, stuff have changed. Yeah, I mean, I, there was a meeting that, that was held for the computer science faculty, and I was already studying people in computers, so I was invited. Is this I, early 80s? This, is when we're this was the late 70s, late 70s 78. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the meeting might have been 78 or be, perhaps beginning of 79, but I, uh, I was already studying computers and people, and I was invited as a... I suppose they hoped I might have a thought, but really is more a uh, you know a welcome guest. Um, but the greatest computer scientists in the world were invited to um, the great names: uh, Licklider, Fano, uh, Papert, uh, really Dertuzos, to legendary figures to, to try to come up with things people, regular people, they call them regular people, might want to do. <laughs> And they call them home computers. The, the term personal computers really hadn't yet right. entered the lexicon. And um, what I remember when I looked at my notes for that meeting was, you know, Seymour Papert was dedicated to the notion that children should learn to program. 
Well, you know, it turned out that that had some takers, not many. For a while, they did. I mean, it, that was controversial. Some people said, okay, children programming, okay. Um, somebody said a calendar. People put their calendars on computers. And people said, that's crazy. Because <laughs> really, a, fl- a little flip book is, is, is fabulous for that. You see right. it all. You flip back and forth. You erase. What do you want out that on a computer? Yeah. You know, the, the flip book seemed like the perfect instrument for that. Um, somebody said, well, names and addresses. And I remember there was a similar reaction, and these are very sophisticated people, that, that really, unless you had a database, um, for most households, you know, your doctor, your lawyer, your friends, really, paper was good. Right. You know, <laughs> it raises the question of was he right? But you know, the, the, yeah. notion that, the notion that we would all need databases. Um, uh, so I love this story because, and then everybody agreed that people would want to play games. Okay. Um, so there would be games. But, but I love this story because it, 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 um, I like to say that it turned out that when, that when we were connected to each other on the network, you know, it wasn't that we would need to worry about how we would keep the computers busy. They keep us busy mm-hmm. because we're their killer app. Uh, we're <laughs> their killer app. Uh, mm-hmm. That we, we want to be tweeting and texting and Facebooking and being connected to each other all the time. We, we can't get enough of, mm-hmm. of, being, of using them to be with each other. Uh, it wasn't a matter of keeping them busy. They keep us busy. But it also shows how recently we really didn't know what this technology was for. Mm-hmm. And it's humbling because, um, you know, really my favorite line in Alone Together, and if, if an author is allowed to have a favorite line... You are here. Is, I'm allowed. <laughs> so it, my, really my favorite line is just because um, we grew up with the Internet, uh, we think that the Internet is all grown up. Mm. That is, that mm. we think that we have a mature Internet in front of us. And we don't. We don't have a mature Internet in front of us. We, we're, we're in the baby stages. Mm-hmm. And that's good because that means we can make it right. That means we can make it right. Right. And it's, we should be in the process of making it right. And, and that, I think, is, your, is such an important um, proposition that we are at the beginning of a, of a kind of a revolution uh, something that is changing us in ways that are unfolding in real time. So, I mean, we often feel like it's just hard to keep up, and it is hard to keep up. But that this, you know, and I, I wonder if we in the 21st century are better equipped to be at a moment like this, where, where we can actually, where we also somehow have the capacity and the intelligence to, to we, we have this capacity, whether we use it or not, to stop and say, all right, let's make this work for human beings. I mean, that, that's what you're proposing. That's what I'm proposing. And I get very discouraged whenever I see any signs, and I've got to say I see, I see many signs, that we don't seem to have a taste uh, for stopping mm-hmm. and asking, uh, well, how can we make this work for us? Um, so I'll give you an example of, you know, kind of my most recent uh, moment of when I get nervous. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg makes a statement that, uh, privacy is no longer relevant to as a as an element in social discourse. Mm-hmm. He says that gets widely reported, not commented on, as though you know 
as, this is, as though this is like a serious, a serious <laughs> pronouncement. I mean, it's very serious when Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the CEO, uh, well, and an un- founder and uh, CEO of an, Facebook, an says announcement that. that one doesn't have to question. I guess right doesn't question. I mean, and you know, I I, I tweet very little, <laughs> and because I I'm not yet into the. You know, into the feeling that my sort of aperçu need to be, you know, tweeted to the world. But this this caused me to tweet, and I said very simply, you know, maybe privacy isn't uh, convenient for the social network, but maybe you know we should be asking. And I did get this in, in under 140 characters. <laughs> um, you know, what is intimacy without privacy? What is democracy without privacy? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are very you know to, to just give up intimacy and privacy and uh, these are very important things. I mean uh, democracy and privacy are very linked together in the modern world. Um, So uh, I get concerned when we don't seem to be stepping up to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I, I wrote the book to be part of that conversation. You know this, you work uh, is the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. Is it a department or is it a is it a project? It's a project. Okay. Um, and you work with several that years project. ago. I just decided that I wanted there to be a place within uh, my department at MIT, within MIT, where it would be easy to bring together people who were working on this kind of thing. And um, we got a wonderful grant from Mitch Kapoor to the Kapoor Foundation, and uh, some money from Intel, and some money from. Um, the Kurzweil Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I mean, various people were generous with us, and um, we did a bunch of projects, most of which, actually all of which, are reported on and alone together, some of which have been reported on in other places, um, to, <coughs> excuse me, um, to, um, to investigate these kinds of things, mm-hmm. you know, on, about how technology impacts on uh, on identity, on growing well, the, up. You know, the language of, but with, that describes the centers, it's really uh, striking and I think kind of countercultural. I actually think many people would be surprised to know that MIT has something that describes itself as a center ref- for reflection on the subversive side of technology um, and that is there to raise the level of public discourse on the so- social and psychological dimensions of technological change. I think you have a typo. Oh, do I? I think it's the subjective side. Oh, of really? Maybe I wrote subversive side, and that was me. <laughs> <Subjective> <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> typo. <laughs> no. I think it's a Freudian slip. Subversive too. Yeah. Subversive too. Uh-huh. But um, okay. it's the subjective side. That mm-hmm. is to say, the way we like to put it is the things that technology does, not for us, but mm-hmm. to us. Mm-hmm. In other words, not that it does our word processing. Which is important, but how does the fact that it does your word processing change your experience as a writer? So those are somewhat mm. different questions. That it that it does your word processing is the instrumental computer. That word processing changes your experience as a writer is the subjective computer. And uh, another one of these examples that's that's even more existential is. Uh, your sense of how technology is changing our sense of aliveness. I mean, you've you've often told this story, and I wonder if you'd tell it again, of taking your daughter to the yes. Darwin exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History. I remember that exhibit. It well, seems I to love, be a pivotal story for you. 
It, it, well, it is a pivotal story. Uh, it's a pivotal story because this is an example of the prepared mind finds it a, a pivotal story. I mean, I've been studying children and how they see the computer as alive since the late 1970s. And you also have worked so, with robotic pets. and Yes. I mean, I've, I have exposed children. So I'm very interested in the question of, you know, when Piaget, the great, the great psychologist Piaget, um, was interested in the question of why, do, what, what do children, how do children decide what's alive and not alive? And he, in the world of traditional objects where you had uh, bicycles and stones and and dolls mm. um he ha- interviewed children about what was alive and not alive and children decided the things that ultimately they decided the things that could move physically move without an outside push or pull were alive <coughs> so that meant that for example they wouldn't um they would incorrectly classify clouds as alive mm. until they could figure out that the wind pushed the clouds. Mm. Or they would need a little time to correctly classify an automobile until they could figure out that the internal combustion engine was really an outside push or pull. Mm. When the computer came, I studied a radical shift in how children went about solving that problem. Because they no longer cared, and this was dramatic, they no longer cared about whether or not something was pushed in terms of its movement. They cared about how this thing thought, Mm. what its psychology was, Mm. whether its psychology came from the inside. And that was stunning. Mm. That was stunning to watch. And then... The story in the museum, and that's kind of where I was when I began to study robotics, that I, in my mind, what children cared about and would categorize as sort of alive were computer objects that seemed to think on their own. Mm. And they would talk about them as sort of alive. And that's where I was in 1995 when I published um, um, Life on the Screen. By the time of the Darwin exhibit in 2006, I think, my daughter saw a Galapagos turtle which had been brought up from the islands. This is the life that Darwin saw. (laughs) And she looks at this turtle, and she's been exposed to, to robots, you know, ever since she's been a baby, the Tamaguchis, the Furbies, the Ibos. I mean, because I've been studying robots. And she looks at me and she says, because this turtle is sleeping, um, it's, it's exhausting you know, to be in, in, this, in this exhibit. The turtle is sleeping and she feels bad for the turtle. She's very ecologically minded. And she says, for what this turtle is doing, they could have just had a robot. Hmm. And it struck me that from her point of view, the fact that it was alive mattered not at all. And I begin to interview, and actually I went back to the museum several times and begin to interview kids and parents about the question of the turtles. <laughs> because the kids began to use a locution, a phrase, 
to talk about the turtles and why they thought really a robot would have been enough. And the phrase they used was, "It's a, a robot would have been alive enough, mm. which was a phrase that by that time I'd been at this study over 20 years of studying computer stuff and how people talk about its aliveness. And I'd never heard that. I'd never heard that a computer was alive enough for its purposes. And, and that's when I started talking about a new pragmatism hmm. among this generation of young people. A Remember, new American, <clears throat> a new pragmatism. A, prag, a pragmatist says, Can, is this thing okay for this job? And in the area of life, and this is a radical change, this is no longer philosophical. This is now, is this robot, life becomes a pragmatic quality. Is this alive enough to do the job of being here in the museum? Is it alive enough for this purpose? And this is important because we're now talking about robots that will serve as companions to the elderly, right. robots that will serve as companions to children, as kind of nanny bots. And this is the question being asked of them. Are they alive enough for this purpose? And I, of course, think this is the wrong question in many cases. And, and that, that moment at the museum helped me frame you know, help me frame my thinking. So, you know, I was uh, struck when I was reading one of your accounts of this, of like that is of the difference of what a, what a parent said, right? So the kids would say, "Did it need? Did it have to be alive for this?" And and a, a father, I remember you saying, "It's it's real. That's the whole point." Right. <laughs> and that point was right. lost on the child. Why? What? What question do you wish the children were asking, or how do you wish they were framing that observation? Well, I don't think it's a question of a wish. I think it's really not for us um, to be wishing, but to be noting. Mm -hmm. You know, why is it that we no longer care if we are among life? What is it that's making life irrelevant to this generation of children? So I don't think it's my, you know, I may, I have my own reason. I think it's very serious and significant that it isn't relevant. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I could say, well, here are why I wish it was. But in my way of approaching this is to begin to say, what are the things these children start to miss if they don't think it's important that things be alive. Right. And so what, what do you think of? What, what do they well, start for example, to miss? Well, for example, when people just uh, plug their earphones in. Mm-hmm. I live on the Cape during the summer. And there are these magnificent dunes that I walk yeah. on the Cape. And when you walk these dunes, and I've been walking them for, for, for years, I mean decades, um, of going to the Cape. And recently, people have their earphones in. And then even more recently, and are listening to their music. And more recently, people are have their earphones in and are walking them with their um, handheld devices and are texting as they walk mm. them. All right. So the question is, if, you're, if you don't care, now you're still getting your exercise, and I'm not saying that they're not looking up to 
you know, to notice anything. I mean, it's not for me to judge that nobody's noticing anything. But there's something about being attentive with the with the life you meet mm-hmm. along those walks and with solitude. Right. I that find you don't get if you're plugged in. That, and to that, me, <clears throat> yeah. the, so those are the kinds of things when you say, well, a robot's alive enough to stand in here. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the sorts of questions that lead you to, well, you know, I'm I'm getting enough of the Cape Cod Dune experience if I'm texting and on Facebook while I'm doing it. Right. So the, 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 the question that starts to form for me is, what are our human purposes as we bail out of our physical present lives? Right. That's the context for me. So you're losing the experience of the dunes as a medium for self-realization, for example. I mean, I think that, mm-hmm. that, that image of the dunes is... I, I think that this idea of solitude is so central and so powerful in your writing that, you know, this... And we don't, we don't think about this very often. You know, this, this basic quality of human health and wholeness that is, comes with being able to feel at peace in your own company, right, as somebody said. Yeah, there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful phrase... Um, in psychology, it says, if you don't teach your children to be alone, they'll only always know how to be lonely. And it's not just your children. I mean, if you don't know right. how to be alone, you'll only always know how to be lonely. And if you're always reaching for the device, the cell, the Facebook, the, the sharing, um, you, you lose that. You, you, and I'm very concerned about this mm-hmm. because I would have to say that, you know, my work is qualitative. It's structured. It's systematic. But it's qualitative. Uh, I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people, but it's qualitative. It's interviews. However, because it's so systematic and over such a long time and so many people, you know, patterns and trends do come out. And I can say that for both children and adults, teenagers and adults, there's a pattern of moving from, I have a feeling I want to make a call, to, I wish, I want to have a feeling, mm. I need to send a text. Mm. In other words, the, the constitution of the feeling becomes part of the experience of the feeling. And mm -hmm. that's not, then you can't be alone because you can't think by yourself. You can't feel by yourself. It's a very dependent, not good situation because then you need other people for all the wrong reasons. You need other people because you almost can't function psychologically without Mm -hmm. them, right? It's a, it's. You're, it's very bad. The other thing that, that I'm aware of with my children, so I'll say I have a 12-year-old son and a 17-year-old daughter, so I'm in the middle of this. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you think about uh, kind of basic spiritual principles, I mean, it, technology is the u- ultimate anti-being-in-the-present-moment <laughs> temptation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have this experience with my kids, and they're not overly 
they're not wildly involved with their technology, I think, compared to some other kids, but just that I'll say to my daughter when we're driving in the car, when we used to just be driving in the car and talking, right, even just a couple of years ago before everybody had phones, mm-hmm. I'll just say, I want you to be with me, right? Mm-hmm. And she thinks she is, but she doesn't even realize that she's not. And it's true of a lot of experiences that they're not, as you say, they're not, it's the same thing, walking in the dunes. But there's, and this is connected to solitude, it's just, it's another, but it's another one of these aspects. Oh, I have the, I have a 19-year-old daughter, and actually just yesterday, uh, we were in the car together, I took her shopping, it was a wonderful, we went shopping, we went to dinner, it was, you know, she's, a, she's in her first year of college, so it was like, the, it was rare, I mean, it was a rare moment of, a precious moment, mm-hmm. and... We get in the car and about to drive her back to her dorm, and um, she pulls out her phone. Yeah. And she's texting her friends. Yeah. And a, a very wise, wonderful friend, uh, Jill Kerr Conway, who's a, oh, yes. a friend and mentor of mine. And the former president of Smith. So. Former president of Smith, mm-hmm. a great writer, a great memoirist, yeah. um, said to me once... Uh, Apropos of raising a daughter, <laughs> she said, a child has to live in her generation. Yeah. And I've tried to use these wise words from Jill Kerr Conway <laughs> to, to, to get me through, you know, mm-hmm. moments of death. So I kind of know that really it's not my place, you know, to be reminding Rebecca about my <laughs> needs of... Because, you know, it's natural for her to to text her friends that she's on her way home, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, but there is a loss. You know, there is a loss. And I'm with because you on that. I remember the conversations that we used to have. In the car? In the car. Yeah. But So I'm with you on that, and, and yet I also think it's like solitude. I mean, I shouldn't... It would be crazy for me to impose some no cell phones in the car rule, right? I mean, I Absolutely. think I'm trying to ban them that's from the, the dinner Jill, table. That's the I Jill struggle. Conway. That's the Jill Conway. That's the Jill Conway dilemma. But, Although but it, I do think, I do think the dinner table is different. I do, I do too. In I this do notion too. of sacred space, but it's a struggle. It to, is a struggle, but oh. I, I believe that there are some places that in the car. Um, you know, it's it's reasonable to say, "Hey, I'm going back to my." You know, to my mm-hmm. friends, I want to tell them I'm coming. You know, every place, every place you are with your children, you can't say is a sacred space. <laughs> you know, you can't. Right. <laughs> you know that that doesn't fly. But just, but I think that for yeah. families as they grow up, I do feel strongly about this because really, this this dinner table thing has been such a theme mm-hmm. in my research, uh, such a theme as teenagers look back on their lives, um, and what they miss. Hmm. It's teenagers who say, my parents text at the dinner table. <laughs> right, right. And there's, right. there's a story in my book that, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, obviously I, I try in, in, in the effort to make your book really a readable, good reading experience, you obviously cut your book down. And in cutting my book down, I, I, every time I cut the book down, I made sure to keep in this story because it's like yeah. my favorite story. It was not going to go. <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure I shortened it till it was it, perhaps too much of a nubbin. I, this, this young man has a mother who's a gourmet cook. So her pleasure is in making these long, long 
many course meals, and that's how she shows her love for her family. And she's married to a kind of master of the universe, kind of Wall Street type guy. And he's on his Blackberry all through dinner. And their son hates it that mm-hmm. he doesn't have his father's attention. The mother isn't getting attention for these meals she's preparing. Nobody feels love. I think there's a sister involved who just stares down to the floor, you know, upset and mortified. And in any case, the, the, the son starts to try to negotiate with the mother. Could she prepare shorter meals mm. so that then maybe the father would put away the blackberry, but he's not going to do it if it's a four-course meal. But maybe he would do it if it was basically just soup and salad. Or maybe he would do it if it was just salad and a grilled steak. But not if it's, you know, maybe they had a five-course meal. Uh, plus coffee and cheese. Maybe there's a cheese course you know, and a dessert course. And, you, you know, you see a teenager trying to negotiate some way to get this Blackberry out of the dinner table. So and it's touching. This, this idea, you, you do use this phrase, sacred spaces. And yes. So, you know, one, um, one, one, one moment of insight that I had about technology was when I was talking to John Kabat-Zinn. Do you know him? He's a... No. He's, a, he's a scientist, but he's worked on bringing meditation into medicine. He's, at, he's in Boston somewhere. He said he made this really simple observation that technology goes 24-7, but we don't. I mean, biologically, physiologically, we right. can't. It's this boundarylessness. I mean, this gets back to your point that, I, I mean, it's, it's not just a matter of choice. It's, at some point, it's a matter of survival. We have to set boundaries. I mean, we, ha- we, we, we have to, it has to be livable. Um, when you talk about sacred spaces, what, what what are you talking about there? To make our life livable, we have to have spaces where we are fully present to each other or to ourselves, where we're not competing with the roar of the Internet. Mm. Um... And quite frankly, where the people around us are not competing with the latest news off the Facebook uh, status update, right? Um, they may not not have anything new. They may just be there being in a way that needs attention. Mm-hmm. Um, this privileging of what's new, what's on the people's minds. Well, I mean. The people who you need to attend to in your life may not have anything new, but they may just need to be with you. Not everything is new. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also that the way the the thing is set up to privilege and to put emphasis on what's new, what's happening, news. Uh, you know, we turn ourselves into cable news channels. I mean, mm-hmm. we, you know, and good news. I mean, people also, but that's a whole different question. I mean, people also like to put things on Facebook that are Facebook that are and certainly Twitter that are happy. There's not a lot and I've interviewed people who say things to me as simple as, you know, I don't even like to put that my dog died. Really? Because yeah, because it's it's uh it doesn't seem the place. It doesn't seem the place for a lot of people to share negative things. Mm. Um 
anyway, I guess I'm saying that a sacred space is, is, is for me the places in your daily life where you want to keep, you want to keep them for yourself and the people who you need to give full attention to. And I have very simple rules. I mean, so far as I have rules for, for how to know you're close to one or in one or should be having one. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, it's dinner. It's sharing meals with your family. It's that moment at school pickup when your kid looks up and is trying to meet your eye, right. and 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 you know you're looking down at your at your smartphone and your child is trying to meet your eye. And I have enough data from children who are going through this experience to know that it's a terrible moment for them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. on the playground. Um, very bad when your child is on the jungle gym and is desperately trying to have you look at them for them to be getting all, you know, for them to be taking hands off the jungle gym to try to get your attention. Mm. Um, Accident time. I mean, be in the park. Be in the park with them. All of this pushing swings with one hand and texting with another, it's not good. Spend, Spend less time there, but make it a space. Make it a moment. These are important moments. It's so interesting that you're talking as much as or more about adults not setting boundaries with this, right? I mean, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, this is this is data driven. I mean, this is how the way you know that the, this is data driven in the sense that this is one of the surprises to me in doing the research is that I thought when I started this research that I was going to be telling a story of children driving their parents crazy. Yeah. And I'm not. It ended up that it was a story of parents, as much a story, of parents leaving their children feeling lonely and alone and modeling the very behavior that then they came to find irritating in their children. Yes, right. I mean, how can we, you know, we talked a minute ago about giving, somehow carving out in your child's life an experience of solitude so that they don't so that they know how to be alone and this idea of being present but if we are model ourselves not modeling those possibilities absolutely absolutely i mean children don't see parents willing to take a walk take a hike in the woods i mean i think the the greatest gift you can give your child is to walk out of the house without your phone I mean, to pick up to pick up the newspaper, to pick up a bagel, to go out for coffee. Don't take your phone. Right. Show your child what that looks like. That you're not, you know, you're willing to step out of the house, not open for communication. You're willing to take a walk on the beach, not willing to have communication. And I and in the in the place in the Cape I live on in Provincetown, there's these beautiful mud flats that that are, again are just one of nature's wonders. And people now walk them with their phones. Right, right. And, and you know, with their kids and their phones. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a very powerful message to a child, that, that we're walking them <laughs> with our phones. Um, you know, and I'm not like a romantic or a... Um, I don't know, one review called me sort of prim or... You know, prim and nostalgic, and I, you know, I don't. No, I don't, I don't think I have a kind of way. crazy. I don't have like a crazy nostalgia for for a life of 
you know, an unplugged life, you know, in cabins on the woods and mm-hmm. not at all. I'm just saying that there are that, that that we have to ask ourselves really what is served by having an always on, always on you, open to anyone who wants to reach us way of life. Because in, in my research, I've found that it actually cuts off conversations mm-hmm. as much as it opens out conversations. Right. So, for example, you can be too busy communicating <laughs> to <laughs> think. Okay. Well, to think. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that if you really want to finish a book, if you really want to write something important, you have to turn it off. Mm-hmm. You can't be. You, you have to think. You know, there's this wonderful line from Barbara Tuckman. Somebody said to her, this great, you know, great writer and very prolific writer. Somebody said, well, how do you write a book? And she said, well, first you have to have an idea. You know, it was like, it's like sort of step one, right. have an idea. Right. I mean, I mean, the, 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 you, you have to be able to think. Right. And, and that, again, sim- comes back to solitude and attentiveness. Absolutely. Right? These, you know, mm-hmm. there's something when I wake up in the morning, I mean, the way I've handled it is I, I do set aside three times a day when I'm doing my email. And that's a lo- it's a lot of email. It's a lot of time. But I prefer it because then the other times of my day, I'm thinking. You're not checking all the time. I'm not reactive because mm-hmm. there are two ways of being. I mean, right. when you're emailing, you're, you're reactive. You're, yeah. It's not you. It's not your independent thoughts. It's you're reactive to po- other people's possibilities, other people's plans, other people's input, other people's ideas. And there's just something about being completely in your own head with your own thoughts mm-hmm. that's very valuable. So that's what I'm. That's what but I'm I have trying to, say, to reflect one of, on. One of the things that was uh, actually helpful for me as I started hearing you out there talking about your book was you talked about research and uh, and the stress that comes with technology. This is something else I don't think we're self-aware about. I also think it probably varies very much from person to person, right? I have a level of anxiety with... Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm actually obsessive. (laughs) I'll say Mm -hmm. this. I'm obsessive about keeping on top of my email. I cannot bear it Mm -hmm. for my inbox to get too big, and I haven't solved it. But at the same time, I am physically aware of my how my stress level rises with technology. Mm-hmm. I can't do Facebook. It makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. Are, are there other people like me out there? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and actually, your actually your email is making you nervous, and you're you're going to probably extreme lengths to deal with that anxiety mm-hmm. by spending a great deal of time. Um, Attending to it so that it won't make managing you too anxious it. to function, right. to managing it. Right. I mean, when I say I do my email three times a day, that's a lot of hours yeah. because I, I, I think we're probably quite similar. I, I, you know, I can get 600, 700 a day. Yeah. And those people, you know, I will confess to your listeners, those 700 messages, those people really don't need to write me. <laughs> I, I, they, you know, they want to. They want to. Mm-hmm. They have a reason. I'm not talking about this isn't spam and this isn't this isn't anything inappropriate, and it isn't it isn't groups. I mean, it isn't lists and stuff. These are just people who have access to me because I have a public email, and who have something to say to me. And this is how the system works now. 
and um, they they don't they don't need all need to write to and they and you don't need to feel uh, beholden guilty to, right, that, right that's right. a hard thing so so this is making me think I, I recently had a conversation with Anthony Appiah who I think you've mm-hmm. you've quoted a philosopher yes. and uh, he he talked about one of the things that technology has done is it's taken away the role of the editor and I mean he was talking about how we yes. how we send our opinions out into the world now. And that there used to be this editorial function, which meant a pause, and it meant thinking, and it meant that there wasn't so, so much raw emotion, that things got edited. Now, I, I'm thinking about what you said at the beginning, that that the Internet is, that, that we're in the baby, we're in the infancy stages of this technology. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, uh, it, if part of this move that you are advocating, of us becoming self-aware about using, shaping technology to serve human purposes, is that we hopefully gradually will become our own editors in terms of we won't necessarily write that non-essential email or answer yes, that non-essential email is that part absolutely. of the process we're in absolutely absolutely because i think that we're going to become we're in between worlds now i still treat email to me as though it were considered correspondence and i i feel as though uh i have a responsibility to answer uh my correspondence but um, I think that as we become more sophisticated, um, we'll go back. We'll we'll adopt a more humane set of rules, mm-hmm. where um, we will um, we will adapt better to uh, people. Won't expect. Uh, well, first of all, one thing we'll do is that people won't expect instant answers. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it is for you, but if I don't respond to an email really within a few hours, people get angry at me. They'll say things like, don't you read your email? But that's one thing where I have, I have just disciplined myself also to hang on to emails that I actually want to give a thoughtful answer to. No, I'm talking about the response. Yeah, right, right. You. And, right. <laughs> then you know, there's I mean, their people, response. Yeah. yeah, I mean, people, mm-hmm. will, people will say, well, don't you read your, don't, mm-hmm. you know, wh- wh- why, wh- where's, your, where's your response? And mm-hmm. I t- try to train people around me saying, I'm thinking. Yeah. I'm thinking. Right. But what, one of the points I make in Alone Together that I think that I, I really want this point to have more attention because it, it's based on, you know, so many interviews really went in this direction from management consultants, lawyers. Um, um, actually, those are the two groups primarily that were this business people too, but it was the management consultants and the lawyers who really got on this, that they start to ask each other questions that can get a quick answer because it's more important to get a quick answer than... And because the client wants a quick answer, so you start to ask a simple question. Mm. Mm. So we start to ask each other simple questions mm. to get a quick answer. Like we're dumbing down our discourse right. in order and asking and answering simple questions, dumbing down our discourse, and yet we're telling ourselves that we live in an ever complex time. Right. So uh, this isn't making any sense. So both on the volume and the velocity. Um, I think that we're going to, over the next 10 years, over the next five years, because I think it's going to happen faster, because I think we're becoming less productive. And I think businesses are, are getting more aware of that. Right. And uh, we'll start to take action. We still may not be asking these deep questions, but 
but it's becoming unsustainable. Well, I think that we're going to be leaving room to ask them mm-hmm. by getting off our email. Do you, Some companies are already insisting yeah, that people or, unplug one day a week. Mm-hmm. Are you? I wonder if, as this happens, um, uh, as we take a more proactive uh, stance in shaping technology, um, del- being deliberate about it, and as you say, honoring what, shaping technology to honor what we hold dear, you must see people taking different approaches to this, and I'm. I'm curious about whether adults and, and young people will do it in different ways, and, and if there may be some tensions we have to hold even in, in our different solutions to this. Well, I think that uh, younger people have more options because they're not yet in the work world. Okay. So young people will talk about, I'm taking a holiday from Facebook, and go off for the summer and, you know, email friends you know, because their friends still are on email and text. Most of the email they don't like, but they'll text their friends over the summer, uh, instant message their friends if they can get their friends to do that with them. Uh, but they'll they'll essentially go to text for the summer and get out of the whole Facebook scene where they feel a lot of pressure to maintain the profile because there are some very, I think, hilarious. I mean, I think my book is so funny, but then, no, I don't know, you know the author... <laughs> When I read sections of this book, they crack me up. But then, you know, I I, I have these these teenagers describing how you know they try to keep up their profiles. They make themselves thinner, but then the you know they but then the stress of you know keeping up the profile just right. You know, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do that. You want to, you know, you don't want to show you're trying. You care too much, but if you show you, you don't want it to be too nonchalant because you don't want to be like some kind of slacker. And then oh, it's just a lot of work. And I'm interviewing one guy, and he's. He, at some point, he's talking about all the work this is, and he looks up at me and says, "I wonder how long I have to keep doing this." You know, <laughs> right? It's it's so clear. There's to him that, that world weariness. Yeah, that, it's like he can't possibly imagine that this mm-hmm. is like going to you know, how long? How long? So I mean, it, they just get exhausted. Yeah. You know, they have to do this and their homework. I mean, it's just like one yeah. more thing. So um, and get into college. You know, it's mm-hmm. like God. So they, they'll drop out of Facebook because that's just a whole other project, and they'll go for summer, or sometimes they'll go for six months during the college application process in particular, and they'll be off Facebook, and they'll just take a break from that. Adults really can't, um, if they have jobs, uh, just say, I'm unplugging, mm-hmm. since so many of us have jobs where the plugging in is, is, is really the, the main way we, we're with each other. Well, you know, and, um, I did declare an email sabbatical for two months last really? summer. Really? How'd that go? Well, my out-of-office bounce said, I'm taking an email sabbatical. <laughs> if it's urgent, you can call this number. It went fine. You know, it went fine. I came back, and it all started all over again. But I noticed that people were so impressed. <laughs> I just couldn't right. believe that I had dared it. But... The world well, I know went a lot on. of people who've declared. I've known a lot of people who declare email bankruptcy, mm. and actually, a colleague of mine, Bill Mitchell at the Media Lab, uh, it's unclear whether he or I came up with the with the phrase of email bankruptcy. Um, we both started using it at the same time. I think we decided that we that it was really like Darwin and Wallace, you know. <laughs> 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 um, but email bankruptcy is where. Um, 
and then I think somebody else said that they had used it too. So, but at about the same time, several great minds came up with this idea that you you basically say, "I have more." There are five thousand, or you make up the number. You know, there are ten thousand. Yes, there are ten thousand messages in my inbox. Yours is one of them. A little, a little program goes through. Oh, interesting. Um, and I am not going to be uh, going through these messages. Mm-hmm. If you if you have continuing business with me, uh, please send me another email. Hmm. If not, um, um, I'm not going to be returning to your earlier request. That's great. That I we just will be considering that transaction, you know, archived. Mm-hmm. And so it's a way of sort of saying, hey, um, what do they say in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous? I'm a victim of higher power. Yeah, I right. declare myself powerless. <laughs> powerless. Yes. You know, kind of like, which, which is sometimes how I feel. I look at the inbox. I just, you know, I think, you know, if I spend the next four weekends doing just this, maybe I could make a dent and bring it down to, you know, quadruple gip- digits. Is that, is, that a, is that really what is best? for me and my health and my friendships and my family is, mm-hmm. you know, is that the best? But I, but you were asking, you know, where we are and that we're in baby stages. I think that we need to get this under control because we, we, we have abused this ability and privilege of being in touch with each other whenever we want to be in touch with each other. Right, right. Um, and we, we... It's just, just not humanly possible. It's, just, it's not humanly right? possible. I mean, it's... So... I do want to talk to you about, though, uh, again, in this same infancy stage, I, I see interesting paradoxes emerging, and, and there are ways in which this technology does create relationships and possibilities that are wonderful. And, uh, I mean, the one that's in, before us right now in the news is... Twitter, Egypt, yeah, right. having a role in in, in democratic research. Yeah, so it's, and actually, Fantastic. I wasn't so surprised by that because I I met Jack Dorsey who founded Twitter uh, uh, back in this fall and and learned which no one had ever told me in all the parodies of what you can't do in 140 characters, which I agree with. But you know that 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 started with him creating real time messaging systems for couriers and emergency workers in New York City. Mm-hmm. There's a sense in which that technology is coming back to its origins as it grows up. Now, obviously, that's still not the whole story of Twitter. But I'll tell you another story that we, we did a, a, a civic, a public forum on civil discourse after the Tucson shootings. Mm-hmm. We had a room of about 100 people who just wanted to, you know, a lot of us grieving and venting about what's gone wrong. We also had people online participating online, you know, from all over the country. So there are 100 people in the room. And there are thousands of people all over the country. We had this interesting experience that in the room, which we could have laid out differently, but it was about 100 people, and they're all looking straight ahead, and they're looking at me, and it doesn't end up being a conversation. It ended up being a presentation and a back and forth between me and other people, and they didn't interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Online, in this online space, there was incredible interaction going on. Mm-hmm. People sprouting ideas right and left about action steps and what they would do next, you know, truly reacting to each other and learning. So that is the other face of 
what te- technology makes possible. That I also feel like we're not as aware of that going on. And That's or you great. know, how do we shape that? How do we encourage that? Oh well, there's so much. There's so much research and activity. I teach a course on. Uh, technology and creative learning, and and there's mm. so much. Uh, I mean, that's th- that's why I find these, you know, characterizations of me as kind of a lonely luddite. Right, you're you know, fascinated kind of by technology. A, a lonely luddite, you know, <laughs> wandering, wandering Starbucks to help to tell people to turn off their Facebook accounts. Yeah, you know? <laughs> So, no, I I love uses of technology that are that are, you know, positive and hopeful and. Exciting, and I I love that, and I think you've just pointed to to one of the most exciting ones that you know, um, all kinds of cross channels and back channels, and right. uh, that's great, um, you know. But but these these knowing how to do that mm-hmm. and getting good at doing that, mm-hmm. um, th- this is the art and the science of 21st century communication arts and sciences. Right. It's not... um, It needs to be nurtured and developed and... uh, And that's true. This community that we have, it is nurtured and it has a... There's a tone we've set, which people adopt. It doesn't just happen because you give people a Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's the problem that we've had in, um, you know, in, um, in education where, you know, you set up uh, the ability for people to have Wi-Fi in classrooms, Mm -hmm. and we've wired, you know, we've wired whole campuses, and you put them in big lecture halls, and um, they shop. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, I mean, was it it just because we put them on Wi-Fi that we thought they were going to be setting up exciting... Fora in which they would be bringing things to a higher level. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, really, those classrooms were set up for them to be listening to the professor and, um, you know, looking at online materials that enhanced and furthered Going what the professor was prevent- presenting and the professor was explaining the reasoning behind the readings or 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 equations, and you needed to really closely follow and. It was not really a good place for for chat, right? Um, and and yet we set up our classrooms to encourage chat, <laughs> and we got chat, right? Um, and univer- one university after another is rethinking this. And as I go around the country, you know, we we talk about it, we laugh about it because everyone who's a professor today pretty much was. You know, all senior faculty were there when this was set up, right? And we remember what was on our minds, and <laughs> and now we stand in the back of those classrooms and watch our students, you know, ordering from REI Sports and Amazon and right. on Facebook and on J Crew, and we, you know, we we didn't give it enough thought. So that's, that's part what of I mean. Growing just up. Yeah. just be, this is part of growing up. Just because we grew up with the internet, we think mm-hmm. the internet is all grown up, and it's not. Mm-hmm. So it really is a moment of an exciting moment of opportunity. And one of the things that makes me optimistic, and I think people have characterized Alone Together as a pessimistic book, and I don't feel that way because no. I'm very optimistic because these parents who are texting at dinner, 
and not see, and, and looking not looking up at their child when the child comes out of school and missing these moments of reading Harry Potter to their kids because they're doing their email or not really paying attention to their sons. These got these dads who used to watch sports with their sons on Sunday and now they're just right. you know sitting there on the couch physically next to them but really they're paying attention to their laptops and their excel spreadsheets. These are not happy people. Right. They right. feel as though something is amiss. And I have a lot of confidence that, that when people feel as though there's something amiss, they act. They act. And I think they will act. You know, one of the things that that your work uh, and reading you made me think about is <laughs> in this growing up process, in this process of change, just a natural space for grieving also. Oh, no, what we're losing, or maybe that's part of also wondering what's amiss and addressing it. You know, when you talked about growing up and your whole world opening up because of books that you found on a bookshelf and they took you someplace that you that your family wouldn't have taken you, or all those objects you stumbled upon, then I wonder, you know, will <laughs> will children in the future stumble on life-changing books on somebody else's Kindle? You know, how... Uh, are there is there is there is part of this process also saying what are we losing and and some of it not being able to get back or even wanting to get back but just noticing the loss I don't know well I think that one of the things that fascinates me now is the question of legacies mm-hmm. um, right what you what? say where do where are memories kept well what that's a big question with all well this that's a bi- that's a big question in my book is where are memories kept right. I'm I mean, this is a gr- of great concern to me because now today's memory closet is locked in somebody's hard drive. Yeah. And it's also not tactile. Mm-hmm. It's also not... It can't be put in a box. It can't be put in a <laughs> box. In the basement. I have... No, it's, actually, this is very serious. I have... My daughter's now going to be 20, and I would say I have 14 years of her life in boxes and in printed photographs and or maybe mm-hmm. 15 years of her life boxes printed photographs scrapbooks beautifully made lovingly assembled and then the last one is pretty much a trip to the galapagos the turtles the, i mean because that's how she knew about the galapagos turtles i mean and then she started taking the pictures right they were digital she turns out to be a great photographer and then she got the iPhone, and the pictures were on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. There was never a print again. Right. Well, we had a, there was a struggle to get a print out of this system. It was just all became. I've got it on the hard drive. I've got it on the. Yeah. I've, I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. You know, struggling with her to get the prints and and. And that it just we went into a different phase, yeah, where we've got it on the we've got it on the computers. I recently started. Uh, so my my kids went to Scotland with their dad. Their grandmother lives there. Which is, it was a big trip, and they wrote me these really hilarious and insightful emails. And for the first time, I I printed out those emails and put them right. in boxes. And I mean, it's not it doesn't come naturally. Good for but you. I thought, look, I want them Good to for read you. these emails about their trip to Scotland. Um, but it, you're right. If it had been a letter, it it just would automatically have been 
filed away someplace tactile. Good for you. I, I end I end alone together with a story of my uh, daughter's. She spent her gap year in Ireland, and no sooner had right. I dropped her off than I'm already missing her. <laughs> and we we have a conversation on Skype, and before the conversation, I had looked at my mom's letters to me when I was a freshman in college, and uh, and she she was dying, and she didn't want me to know, and the letters are so moving because she's she's struggling to um to tell me who she is and she senses she doesn't have much time and I didn't know this I just had these beautiful letters and um and they're so precious to me and I I tell Becca I meant my daughter you know um gee you know I'm going to give her one and then I would write my mother letters and of course I have those letters too in which I try to tell her who I am as I'm taking this next step in my life. And so here I have my daughter on Skype, and we, we're, we're sharing every intimate detail <laughs> of her life. She's holding up her dress. We're deciding on her shoes for some party she's going to. I mean, I could not be more involved. Right. And I'm, like, telling her, you know, well, what about, you know, sharing? <laughs> Wouldn't you want to maybe write me, you know, a letter? You know, kind of. Mm. And so she says, you know, well, you know, why don't you write me a letter? And then I sort of say, well, you know, that in some ways this book is my letter to her because in this book I I think of this book as my letter to her because in this book I talk about my concerns about what kind of legacy this generation will lead to the next. Mm-hmm. And what are the things that we want to leave? You know, what are the things that if we don't pass them on, even with this new technology, we're going to feel we didn't do our job? And I know the ones for me. I mean, I have the ones that are important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel very strongly about privacy. I want to be a part of that discussion. I want to start that discussion. I want to, if I didn't start it, I want to be in the mix of it. Um, what is intimacy without privacy? What is democracy without privacy? A very important conversation. I, I, I want to, you know, I can't necessarily make that conversation come out the way I want it, mm. but I want to make sure that my voice is heard in the mix, making sure that that it's not just because it's not convenient for the social network that that conversation doesn't take place. And That's know, very important to me. The question of where leaders... And then solitude. And then solitude. Uh, yes, the importance absolutely. of solitude. And this question of where leadership lies in starting these important questions about how we shape technology to be hum- humane and, and sustainable. And, I mean... The answers, the possibilities of that answer are more interesting because of the nature of this technology, right? Like, there's a possibility for everyone to be a leader <laughs> on their Facebook page or as they reshape their family lives. I don't know. Yes. You you have special uh, powers from, you know, from sitting at MIT to to really shape this big public discussion. But but it's not limited to people like you. No. I think I think that's, what's, that's what really makes this technology so so powerful mm-hmm. is that I mean look at the way it empowers citizens politically yeah um, you know look at the look at what's going on in the Middle East yeah. I, I think that these are uh, you know we need to take our inspiration from that that you know if people can make political revolutions you know we can make revolutions in how we want to you know think about questions like you know privacy in our own country mm-hmm. civil liberties in our own country um the way we want to run our family lives. Right. 
so I'm I'm optimistic because I I'm optimistic because the people who I interviewed were not happy mm-hmm. uh, about the place that we'd come to. People sense that there's something amiss. And that's why I'm a little bit surprised that, you know, people, that, the, that this book has been characterized, oh, she's just a Luddite, she doesn't like technology. Because that's, um, that's not what I got as I did the interview work, where right. people were not, uh, which I think says something about, you know, who reviews books and who's in books. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people out there who are not happy with where... They love their phones. They, won't, they, they love their music. They love listening to their books on their MP3 players. I'm not, yeah. as do I. But there's something about this that has just tipped out of balance, and they want to get it right. Yeah, but your call to reflection, I mean, that's much more exacting than, than describing a kind of diatribe against technology, right? I mean, you're yeah. describing work of generations. You know, you also, near the end of the book... Of alone together, you you tell a story of how your writing was interrupted by the Jewish High Holy Days, and yes. your rabbi talking about four things that we have to, to say to the that we, the four things we have to say to the dead. I'm sorry, thank you, I forgive you, I love you. And you wrote, "That's what makes us human." Over time, over distance, I just want to ask you to kind of zero in on that idea of what makes us human, because. You know, if we had another hour and a half, we could talk about all this fascinating work you do with human-like robots at MIT. And, you know, I've known about that MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory for years. And um, you're working with bringing uh, robotic companions to people in nursing homes and really applying this technology in interesting human ways. Well, no, but I'm I'm working on saying I don't find that human. Lest your your listeners get the wrong idea. Okay. Is I'm saying that... um, this is not. A You're human studying use. that being done. You're studying. That. I'm studying that being yeah. done, and I'm saying, wait a minute. Uh, why do we want to do this? Mm-hmm. Because you know, you give a robot who doesn't understand, but who pretends to understand, mm. to an old woman who wants to talk about losing a, a husband, losing a child, and the robot's going, uh huh, uh huh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. You're sad, uh huh. It's it's a kind of to find solace in deception mm. is is to me an inhuman use of this technology, and yet we're going in that direction. I want people to reflect on this too. Mm-hmm. And and my question to you also is: How do you, through all of these experiences you have, positive and negative with technology? I mean, how do you? How has that question of what it means to be human? Um, what, what kind of nuance has it gained that you maybe wouldn't have thought of before? Well, I think it's, I think it's given me... Um, I'm so challenged on it all the time. You know, so, for example, um, things that seem apparent to me are so... I realize they're so not apparent to other people. For example, I think I know the, what it means to be in a human conversation. In a human conversation, if I talk about the death of my mother, I'm talking to another person who can imagine or who has known and understands the arc of a human life cycle where death is part of that picture, hmm. who, who anticipates loss 
of people they've cared about and indeed of their own life. Um, that's a human conversation about loss. And so I think that I'm... What this work has taught me is that there's something about where we are now, and I call it the robotic moment, uh, and it includes artificial intelligence, Facebook. Uh, it includes all of these places where we put technology in to substitute mm -hmm. artificial companionship for the more direct ways in which we used to know each other. There's something about what we're doing now that makes the notion of what, what is special about a human conversation um, less accessible to people. It takes more mm. discussion with people to get them to a place where they at least know what I'm talking about. Mm. And, and that's been very sobering to me um, because I don't need to be right, but I, I do need to feel as though I'm people understand what I'm trying to communicate and you know I guess I was I was talking to somebody and they said you know well if if you don't know what a human conversation is you know you're not in one you know <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I thought that was too sharp a, a formulation but you know if you're talking to a robot mm -hmm. if you're talking to a robot about your anxieties about death and you don't feel like, hmm, maybe this isn't the place for that. Uh, you know, I need. You know, we need to talk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's because it's not the right place for that. What? What? And what are the possibilities you see on the other side of that? Maybe not realized now, but if we begin to be self-aware about technology maybe not robots i mean the truth is most of us i couldn't come couldn't believe what you the work you're doing and what's out there that i didn't know about but but even just our ordinary the technology that permeates daily lives um if we take seriously these questions of how we shape it to to human purpose to to living deliberately to being alive and attentive you know do you think it may offer us possibilities of uh you know, having new new aspects to those things or, or learning new things about our humanity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first, one of the first things, I mean, I, I say in the book, and I really believe that one of the, the most wonderful things about technology is it causes us to confront our human purposes, which has the fantastic effect of causing us to ask what they are. Mm -hmm. So you, every technology causes us to say, you know, do we want this? Why do we want this? So I think we discover and rediscover what our human purposes are when we meet a technology that offers us something, and then we get a chance to say, well, hey, what's this for? Mm -hmm. I think that the, the, the discussion coming up ahead about whether or not we want robots to care for our elderly is going to be one of the most interesting, important, and humanistic conversations that we're going to be privileged to have. Mm. Because, and it is coming. In other words, you may have learned about it first in my book, but you know, we are soon going. To, the, the rollout. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have written it in the book if the rollout wasn't imminent. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be hearing more and more about it, and um, because it will be proposed to you. And it will be very tempting 
And, you know, I think the right, for me, the right answer is no, this isn't appropriate because this is deception. And I don't mean being taking care of your, the elderly in, in ways like, you know, helping them reach for things or, mm-hmm. or safety things. You're or talking about companionship, right? I'm talking about companionship and pretending that they understand the meaning of conversations about trying to sum up a life. Mm. Um, and it's very tempting because, you know, roboticists will tell you there are no people for these jobs. But there are people if you pay them and you train them and you give them benefits. Mm. It's, it's, our, it's our social priorities that, that make this tempting. But um, this is going to be a powerful, important humanistic conversation, and it's on the horizon. Um, I think the conversation about really uh, uh, how much information about yourself do you really want Facebook to have? Mm -hmm. You know, how much convenience are you willing to, uh, do you need to have, and how much uh, privacy are you willing to exchange for it? You know, if it knows everything about you, it can be recommending you know, dresses only in your size that are available only around the block. Right. But how much does it really need to know about your social life that week um, to be suggesting what dresses you might need to buy? Is that creepy? Um, You're saying that we have to take control of that. We absolutely have to take control because mm-hmm. this is a this is a company. This is a company. I mean, this is a this is a you know this is a. This is a corporation. Mm-hmm. This isn't a. This isn't your mother. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. Um, right. Uh, this isn't your mother. It isn't a. a it's a company, mm-hmm. uh, and I think people forget that. I mean, I think that's also one of the very interesting things that that we've come to realize that if that if companies put on the right face, and they're in an intimate appliance, if the face of a company. Mm-hmm is an intimate appliance and an intimate object, we forget that they're a company. Mm. Facebook, for most people, stops feeling like a company. It starts to feel like something intimate on their phone. Right. What, what else? What have, is there anything, what have I not asked you that you'd really like to talk about, add to this? It's been pretty. <laughs> well, I did have my moment of, you know, you could ask me when did I have my moment of seeing that something had shifted that made me go from positive yeah. to negative. Okay. Okay. Ask me. All right. So, um, you said to me early on that you that, that there was that you had this galvanizing moment when you realized. Oh, in fact, it was ironic, right, that you wrote a book in 1984, Orwell's year, that mm-hmm. was very optimistic about technology. But then you you shifted. So what 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 did that? Well, I wrote a book in 1984 that was positive, and then I wrote a book in 1995 that, in some ways, was even more positive. Mm-hmm. I always had some, I always had some, um, you know, caveats. I always had some concerns. But essentially, in 1995, I, I was uh, 1994. I was focused on how we would use the internet as uh, a kind of identity workshop for playing out identity possibilities. Mm, right. Second self. And uh, there was Second Self in 84 and then Life on the Screen in yeah. 94. And what changed for me in 95 was um, were two things. Is I, 
I saw up close sociable robots and how seductive they were. Hmm. How all they had to do was look you in the eye, uh, gesture in your direction, and you were toast in terms of thinking that there was, in fact, somebody home, that there was a sentience and a consciousness and there just there didn't have to be so we, we project that is that natural for us yes. to project that because it's pushing our darwinian buttons right with eye contact the le- facial yes, expression eye contact particularly the eye contact and mm-hmm. tracking your motion because the last the last thing that we ever met that was able to do that was another mm-hmm. was us in, when we would meet it in the in the jungle mm-hmm. it was another one of us and so Roboticists are not even making robots that are trying to be smart. They're just making robots that are trying to push those buttons. And I saw that in 1995 when I met a robot called Cog mm-hmm. that, that had that effect on me. I was trying to compete for its attention. And it, it, it profoundly had that effect on me. And I, I, I realized that there was this whole kind of robotics that was going to really change the way we people saw the world. And then the second thing was um, I had been very optimistic and interested in in how people were going to experiment with identity online. But, you know, I would have to say, and I joke with my students, you know, call me not prescient. Um, (laughs) I imagined that they would be doing it in these kind of periodic times when they Mm. would... uh, go online and experiment with identity and they would pretend they would walk away from the computer mm-hmm. and go have dinner with their families, right? Right. I, I didn't really think about this always on, always on you uh, component to what they were doing. And how dangerous that in fact could be for fragile identities? Yes. For real, I did, fragile or, real or world how, identities. Yes. Or how that would change everything. Mm. And then I, I met a group of um, experimenters, a group of researchers at MIT, who called themselves the cyborgs, um, right, right. who even in uh, the mid-'90s sort of wore the web on them. And I just determined that I was going to uh, study that as it developed. Now, the way they wore the web on them, they wore backpacks, they had their, the you know, the the, um, they had goggles and glasses. Were they that taking had, that from uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation? Well, they were taking it sort of. I mean, they were uh-huh. taking it from the, from Donna Haraway and the notion of what of integrating self with machine because right. they they were they wore glasses that were in fact the screens of their of their computers and they they wore in their backpacks were computers and in their pockets were keyboards and I mean they. They turned them, and they had little radio transmitters in their hats. So and they I mean, were enhanced, enhanced yes. human beings. So you know, yes, we, we but just, we are enhanced human beings when we're carrying around our iPhones, mm, right? Right. So we've turned ourselves into them, and and I met them in 1995, and I just determined that I would follow their story mm. forward. We just have a few minutes. You know, the question I'm dying to ask you is, what if you are science fiction? If you like, if you have been watching Caprica, which was canceled, or Battlestar Galactica, any of that, which has those the Cylons, the the human, no, obviously not. Are you you're not into that stuff? No, <laughs> I think you would like Caprica. But anyway, 
Uh, I think this is a fabulous interview, and I'm so well, grateful. Well, thank you so much. This has been so has been so fun. Well, one of the things that technology does make possible that's good is we'll turn this into an hour of radio, but lots of people, we put up the unedited interview, and uh, I'll take out your comments about reviewers at the beginning. But the, <laughs> will you? Yes, will I will. You? I will be attentive to that. I don't want that. to be churlish. No, I, I heard know. you say that, and I thought, we'll edit that. But people will listen to the whole, uh, you know, 80 minutes, and, and that it's just been great. So we'll, we'll let you know what's happening with us. I think we, uh, we're going on some production travel in March, so I think it's going to be produced for or put on the air after that. And... Uh, if we have any questions, we'll send you an email. But I'm, uh, I'm rooting for you. I think your work is so important, and I'm, I'm really glad you're asking these questions. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.